Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome back to Reimagining Love. I am truly excited to kickstart 2024 with our first guest expert of the year. My guest today, Dr. Marielle Bouquet, brings so much warmth and care to what can be a tender and twisty topic, intergenerational trauma. Dr. Bouquet is a world-renowned intergenerational trauma expert, psychologist, professor, and the author of the brand new book, Breaking the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. Weaving together scientific research with practical exercises and stories from the therapy room, Break the Cycle teaches readers how trauma gets transmitted from one generation to the next and how they can learn to pass down strength instead of pain to future generations. Dr. Bouquet's clinical framework infuses ancient and indigenous healing practices like sound bath meditation and breath work into a modern, comprehensive therapeutic approach. She has appeared as an expert on Good Morning America and Today and in Allure and Self and Glamour, among many other outlets. She's originally from the Dominican Republic and currently lives in New Jersey. This conversation covered so much ground. Of course, we discuss intergenerational healing and the importance of embracing our cultural gifts and traditions within that work. But we also explore overcoming feelings of imposter syndrome, being present in our relationships, and so much more. Together, we tackle a listener's question about an ex whose name is coming up a bit too frequently in a new relationship. The work of tending to our wounds matters, and I hope that this conversation with Dr. Bouquet inspires you to explore practices that invite mindfulness and self-compassion to your inner work, work that you do on behalf of yourself and on behalf of the people who love you. Hi, Marielle. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. I'm excited to talk with you as well. And I want to start, we always start, whenever I have a guest on the show, I start with a relational self-awareness question for the guest. And for the first 100 plus episodes, we used one particular question. But now in the new year, we're doing new year, new question. And you are our first guest to be asked the new question. So are you ready for the new brand spanking new relational self-awareness question? (laughs) I'm so ready. I would love to ask you how you are reimagining love in one of your important relationships, something that you are curious about, something you're trying out, a shift in your mindset, a shift in your approach. How are you reimagining love in a relationship today? Yeah. So for me, 
you know, the way that I am reimagining love and making sure that I am really fully attuned and aware of also how I'm taking in the people that I love is by practicing mindfulness, perhaps to the degree that is maybe it doesn't, it's not even fitting to the current society that we live in because we're so digitized. So I actually put my phone away and I, uh, especially like with my nephew, who is someone who I, I don't want to miss the moments that I actually get to have with him. He's 16 and, you know, off to college in two years. And so I, I want to make sure that I maximize my opportunity of having actual conversations that are present and mindful and engaging and that he could see me looking in his eyes and, you know, maybe like playing with his hair and things that. Um, really tie into how I take in the moment and take him in and and vice versa. So a a lot of mindfulness for me. Mm, Beautiful. And knowing that when your phone is near you, it's going to just pose a distraction. And that's something that is just not even fully conscious for us, right? And so your practice is to put your phone really away and make sure that you're bringing your attention to the preciousness of the moment. Yes. And I, you know, I've actually extended it even to other members of my family. So whenever I visit my parents' home where my nephew lives, I actually, there are times when um, I'm leaving the house and I'm like, oh my goodness, where's my phone? Because I've gone without it for such a long time that I kind of forget that I I put it somewhere, like tucked it in under a pillow or something. That's great. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about my own experiences. Like I think that sometimes, I mean, I'm aware that there are different functions that my phone can serve for me, but there's a way that I think that that in a family situation, maybe having my phone near or reaching for my phone may be a way of just managing my anxiety, maybe a way of defending against some of the vulnerability of being around family. But in doing that, right, and sort of turning to our phone to manage ourselves, we, we miss the opportunity to kind of flex that muscle and to just learn how to be present in all of its complexity, the joy, the tenderness, the vulnerability of being present. So you're reminding us that there, that there's an opportunity there to practice. Like there's a really, really important muscle that that we're at risk of having atrophy right now. Mm, wow. That is such a powerful statement. And it is in part why it's so important for me, you know, to choose my nephew as like that person. I I aim to be like really present. I think it helps also that I'm a therapist, right? Because we there's this level of attunement that we're able to garner, you know, within our training also. So that definitely has helped. But I I understand that in his generation, that atrophy is much more palpable than it is perhaps in ours. And it is something that I I want almost to kind of offer him at least an alternative if perhaps in his generation, there isn't a lot of dialogue that's had among his peers that that reflects that mindful energy. At the very least, you can see it present in myself and his mother and his grandparents and people that love him. And that way, it's an opportunity for him to say, I know another way and I have a choice now. Mm, you are just so naturally bringing your intergenerational lens to it. And this, you know, we're going to talk in our conversation about healing intergenerational trauma, but alongside which you do, I mean, this is woven throughout your beautiful new book, Break the Cycle, is there's, yes, there's looking at intergenerational trauma, but there's also looking at all the intergenerational gifts and the traditions and the culture and the legacy that you get to inherit and pass along. And so what you're saying is that you are fully aware that your nephew is actually part of this river of family love. And one of the things that you know his elders can offer him is this other way, because the elders in his life are all digital immigrants where he is fully a digital native, right? So you know, you have memories of being young without a smartphone in your hand. And so you know that one of the traditions you are tasked with passing on to him is knowing how to be in community without your phone next to you. And so that's part of your responsibility as an elder. Yes, absolutely. And and it's, you know, it, it gives him agency. Whenever we have choice, we have more agency, more empowerment, more of a capacity to see variable ways of engaging with every situation that is presented to us in this world. And especially when it comes to relationships, we can say, you know, I know alternate ways of actually showing up in this very same scenario. And now I have the opportunity to make an active choice 
that's based on, you know, what I desire to be the outcome. Oh, so cool. I mean, and I th- I'm sure you have these moments too, where I'm really heartened by the way young people really are, like many of them are thinking critically about this stuff, you know, and knowing that there's, that there are some risks around reliance on technology and what it means to grow up with technology. So, and even more so for your nephew, where he's, he's learning how to toggle back and forth. And so you're giving him that opportunity to really think critically about how do we use this technology in a way that serves us and make sure that we have also like those interpersonal skills that we all need. Yeah. 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 Okay, so as we move into talking about your your work and your new book, Break the Cycle, A Guide to Intergenerational Healing, I wonder if you could start us off by just taking a little time to locate you, Dr. Marielle Bouquet, professionally and personally. Yes, my background is that of being an Afro-Dominican, born in the Dominican Republic and raised in Newark, New Jersey in uh, the U.S., I actually started in the area of health psychology when I first started studying and really trying to understand health disparities, which eventually both the research work and also the clinical work eventually led me to an intersection that was very clear cut about intergenerational trauma. So now, you know, I'm, I'm an author and um, an author specifically that focuses on how we can work through the generational wounds that exist in our families and our communities based on a lot of the work that has transpired in my therapy room, based on the work that I've researched and the focus that I've held on to for the past 10 years. And so my, my birth of this beautiful book that I'm, I'm so incredibly honored to show to you, to the world, and, and for others to also heal from. Yeah. You do a beautiful job of weaving together the science, the psychology, the spirituality, as well as your own journey throughout the book. It's really, it's quite seamless how you bring these threads together. And I think that it helps the reader, you know, you are, you ask the reader to kind of move between these different realms. And I think that's what makes your approach to healing intergenerational trauma that much richer is that there's a number of different important traditions and and streams that come together. Mm -hmm. You, You talk early in the book about the experience of being a Black Latina woman pursuing your doctorate at an Ivy League institution and the ways in which you faced both racism and classism at your school and that you wanted to quit. And that your mom said to you, I'm I'm going to quote, quote your mom from your book. Your mom said to you, you come from a lineage of strong and resourceful people. God has your back and so do we. You are already victorious. Now go back in there and show them how powerful you are. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about the impact of your mom's words on you at that time in your life? Oh, yes. Uh, I really <laughs> love this moment because, you know, I, I wish that people can actually even have an eye into the moment itself because I was actually, I remember my face was on my mother's lap and I was crying to her and I was just inconsolable, just in tears and really feeling like there's no way that I could return back to that institution. I must stay here where I feel a sense of safety. And when she said those words to me, It was one of those moments, I've had maybe a handful, just a handful, but this was one of those moments in my life where I actually felt the weight lift, like almost Mm. immediately, which is why it felt so potent and and so necessary to add into the book, because I was like, this was a moment where I literally felt my power kind of like come into my body and the fear felt like it had released. I felt like I wasn't alone. I felt like I had a strength that I hadn't been tapping into. In that moment, I was like, you know what? I've got this. I've got what I need to actually succeed in these spaces that, albeit I am the only person that looks like me in these spaces, I still have something to offer a perspective, experiential and professional, that can bring a lot of layers and the cultural element to the perspectives that we discuss within these therapeutic spaces. And so what stuck with me was the way that the the weight lifted. It it was instantaneous. And it was some alchemical blend of her words and her energy, right? Because it was also, right, I can just see it, your cheek on her lap, her Mm -hmm. message sank into you at a level beneath your own kind of cognitive. It wasn't a rational process. It was a felt. It was an embodied process that you felt the weight lift. 
It was. And I believe that it was also the part of the embodiment had something to do with a, a mirror element of our embodied selves. Like when I saw my mother with this gentle power, like the way that she expressed those words were with this beautiful, buttery gentleness, but there was so much power and conviction and confidence in her words that it almost kind of helped me to see, oh, that's the mirror. I can be gentle and powerful myself because that's what I come from. I see that right in front of me. I can embody that very being generationally that's in me too. This is my mother. And so I have that capacity. I can you know, translate that into my own version and then move forward from there. I know that very often people with marginalized and racialized identities feel an immense pressure to do something for the community, like a pressuring through. And I imagine that was part of your motivation was like, I should, I have to, I must. And that it's like your mom offering to you was the different like I get to, like I get to and I will. It was less of like what you had to do on behalf of everybody and what you could do and what was yours to do. Yes. And, you know, it was definitely that permission. And also there was this, there's this thing about my parents that I think, you know, I used to actually see it as a little bit of a, uh, maybe more on the negative spectrum, which is that they can be very open and permissive to whatever it is that I desire to do. And that was the case, like when I was in undergrad and they were like, whatever you want to be, right? Rather than like some parents might just drive me in the direction of maybe a more lucrative profession or whatever. Um, And so, you know, one of the ways in which my family showed up for me in those moments was by saying like, whatever you decide, we're here, we love you. We will welcome you. We will be with you. We, you know, it is your choice to go back and, and fight and do the work and, prove that you can do this because we believe you can. However, whatever it is that you choose, we will be here. And, and it was very holding versus like maybe when I was an undergrad, like I was like, just tell me what to do. <laughs> right, please. Yes. <laughs> you also have a really compelling take on imposter syndrome that you write about in the book. And I wonder if you could share it, that, that, that you really see imposter syndrome as very often the reflection of what happens when, when people have been marginalized and omitted and left out of spaces, that imposter syndrome then is the result. Can you talk about what happens when we see imposter syndrome in more of a collective way versus an individual way? Imposter syndrome itself, I call the intergenerational lie that we've absorbed through the generations that we don't belong. And it is a byproduct of being cast out for generations out of certain spaces. And we see it in just about every marginalized community available. We even see it in, you know, in women or people who identify as women often being cast out, let's say, of the STEM field. Yeah. You know, and and the fact that whenever we're in these spaces where, you know, we're surrounded by scientists and mathematicians and psychiatrists and like all these people that have a science background, we oftentimes feel uh, like the other or like we don't belong or we don't hold the same amount of knowledge, acuity and and the perspective that can be honored and welcome in those spaces because traditionally these spaces have not been open to us for a very long time and so we kind of are new to the spaces but we're new because we've been cast out however imposter syndrome tells us it, this internal narrative of i don't belong here when in reality is you weren't allowed in here and as a result now you have to be a cycle breaker that breaks through the barriers to get through the doors, then shatter the glass ceiling and actually get yourself to the level that you deserve and the level that many people before you were not allowed to reach. You know, the side effect very often of imposter syndrome is shame. The shift that you're offering is from shame to what? What is somebody moving into as they start to shift their perspective and know that actually it's not a me thing. It is that I I am new in this space because people who look like me are new in this space. And so it's not my shame. It's what like what opens up then is shame becomes. I think the antidote is, is truth. I think mm-hmm. that the truth is what frees us from the shame that we internalize as a result of imposter syndrome. Because when I can see the truth that 
Black Dominican immigrants that come from a lower class background, um, you know, and whose second language is English, come into spaces like Columbia University, where, where I got my doctorate, that, that those spaces haven't traditionally understood how to orient a student like myself. And then I was, you know, a professor and then a clinician there. So like at all steps, there wasn't an ability to understand how to integrate and hold someone who held my identity. The people that have traditionally been the gatekeepers of these professions have not had the tools or the ability to release some of their power in order to integrate folks like myself. That's the truth. That's the truth. The lie is that I don't belong and that I'm not good enough and that, you know, I'm, I'm too dumb for this space because I, I didn't get the, you know, elite education growing up. Mm, shame becomes truth. <laughs> Absolutely. So I want, I want us to be able to offer a listener kind of a window into the process of how one starts to look at the intergenerational patterns that have come in. One of the patterns that you talk about in your own family is a kind of loyalty bind that you grew up with. Um, you describe that in your family, when you would outgrow something or something would break or your family was no longer using it, it would go in a box. And at some point in time, that box would be shipped back to the Dominican Republic for your extended family and your community back in the DR. But you write that what was being stored, this is a really powerful sentence, you write that what was being stored was actually not worn clothing or a broken toaster. It was your mother's guilt for leaving home. Can you talk to us about that sense that she carried that then you began to carry as well and had to kind of learn how to be a cycle breaker around this? Ooh, yes, this is the this is the meat of you yeah. Know, this what? is a big one. This is so <laughs> yeah. big. It's so. I mean, it was like one of those, as Oprah would say, little hairs, little baby hairs, stood up on my neck as I read this part <laughs> of the book because it was just you wrote it beautifully. It's so compelling. It is a way the physicality of the broken, discarded objects holding so much energy around loyalty, abandonment, transition. I think that many of our families, such as my own, have ways in which they have tangible things within their lives that are representative of the pain that they carry. In my family, because it's a very cultural thing for Dominicans, once we leave the island to ensure that we're taking care of everyone back home, and my mother is the eldest of eight, so she as an eldest daughter held on to that spirit of, I must ensure that I take care of everyone else because even though we are living in the poverty line in the U.S., it's not the type of poverty that our family lives in in the Dominican Republic. And so for her, there was always a sense of whatever extra dollar that I have has to go back to being able to provide for my family who sometimes don't even have a meal to eat. So the, the level of guilt was palpable and was also very real and very driven by real circumstances. But what it did is that it, you know, those boxes started to symbolize uh, almost kind of like a pillar in our home. And mind you, we lived in an apartment, right? And so like, it's not like the boxes could be like very, very hidden. Eventually we moved to a, a bigger apartment and there was a, a bit of tuck-in space, but you know, th this was a very visible item that reflected that we mustn't ever leave the duty of ensuring that we take care of others. But unfortunately, what that, the consequence of that is that we, in essence, tended to abandon ourselves. And so, you know, my mother, she would, you know, she would take care of us, of course, you know, we never went without whatever it is that we needed. But there was always this perception that anything that was extra needed to be preserved, even if it was no longer functional. And, and so I grew up with that mentality and that perception of all the things that I owned. Like I was well into, you know, being a doctor and still having hand-me-down furniture, clothes, like just everything, you know, and just like really not wanting to discard things because of this idea of I shouldn't be spending money when my family needs me to be the matriarch and to take care of everyone because now I had inherited that role. And it's very, it gets very heavy because you see the depths of poverty and how much you literally can't excavate a person or a set of people out under one income. And it becomes this ongoing, heavy 
sentiment that you carry with you, just like my mother did for so many decades. And I started thinking like, I don't want to carry this because it feels really heavy. And I've been carrying it since I was a kid. And it doesn't feel like this is where I'm going to experience emotional liberation by constantly, you know, feeling like I, I must live in a deficit so that I can be an abundant provider for everyone around me. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. It's such a big question, but how, what are the little, what are the ways that you work with that now in your life today? So as you give yourself more permission to move into abundance, to allow yourself moments of abundance, like how do you, how do you titrate that for yourself? Like, how do you step into it? How do you, do you experience a kind of like guilt that comes up and how do you work with that? I have to actually externalize the words. So I have to speak to myself and sometimes I actually uh, speak to my sister, which is really nice that, you know, I have her and she's also a fellow cycle breaker and someone who has helped me sort through a lot of things. But uh, there are times when I simply have to say the words out loud, like you deserve this, you've worked hard for this because I need to hear them. I need to hear myself say instead of it being clouded by a million other thoughts and just like buried underneath thoughts that perhaps would have been more powerful because they've been there for so many decades, I have to explicitly tell myself, you deserve the freedom of experiencing a massage. And for, you know, and that also pours back, right? The added benefit is that I get to be in a more settled body that can then go back to my family and be a better version of myself. I can show up to my work as a better version of myself and really serve from not a place of survival mode, but from a place of centeredness and, and, and mindful attention and attunement to the people that, that I get to work with. And so it's, there's so many added benefits, but I have to say these things. There are these things that are tied to this and it goes back into all the places where you want to pour nourishment. Yeah. Yep. You talk yourself through it you and you externalize mm-hmm. it and you say it out loud. That part becomes a practice and a ritual for you. And I hear very much that it's not, that it's not either or. It's not either you are a dutiful daughter and matriarch of your family, or you are a, you know, selfish individual cut off from anybody else. It is, it is not an either or. You nourish yourself so that, right? The nourishment is for you, of course, because of your own deservingness and it allows you then to pour from a cup that has been filled. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, if I were to shift to any of the extremes, I think that I would uh, be in a place of self-protection, right? If I were to like close people off and just be like, no, it's all about me. I'm going to take care of myself now and that's it. It probably would, you know, have a flavor of that. And and I, I think that the harder thing to do is to weave through the nuance and, and really find a middle path. I think that that's, that's hard, <laughs> but it's more rewarding because in the end, there is greater synergy that we can build with the people around us. We can build relationships that are, you know, like based on just a, a, an amalgamation of different interspersed values. And like, there is so much more depth and, and, and so many more gifts that can like blossom from that middle space. Okay, is that what you refer to as the intergenerational higher self? <laughs> yes. Yes, it's the version of us that can actually reflect those kinds of experiences, that the version of ourselves that is the wisest self, but not just our wisest self, but also all of the wisdom and strength that has been passed down 
and the resilience that's been passed down that matched with our own is our intergenerational higher self. And it's the version of ourselves that holds infinite wisdom that has an ability to really steer us in the right path. And that has a ton of courage because really whenever we're working with a healing process or a healing journey, we're going to need a lot of courage. And usually our, our higher selves, particularly our intergenerational higher selves, really hold a lot of that courage for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can we talk about the tea? I feel like we got to talk about the tea. You just had the two-year anniversary of, of your tea with Dr. Marielle Bouquet on Instagram. This is something that you started a couple of years ago, and you've done over 100 yeah, over 200, I think. Yeah. Over 200, mm-hmm. over 200. So tell us, please, about the significance of tea in your life and the lineage for you, the intergenerational lineage of tea. Yes. So tea <laughs> is actually um, really special for me because tea has actually been uh, a bomb for generations of my family. My grandmother used to use tea to actually heal her kids because they weren't really kind of proximal to any hospitals or anything like that. So what they had was really the herbs that were growing around them. Um, and even right now, like she has, you know, she's passed a, a number of years ago, but in front of her home, there's still a strawberry bush. And in that bush, there are some strawberry leaves uh, that she used to actually pick and and make tea out of. Hmm. And, you know, my mother started orienting me around the power of the teas that my grandmother used to make. She actually just dropped off tea for me just last night. You know, I, I and, and the tea is like, I swear it will cure the worst of the worst of anything that you could have but um (laughs) maybe maybe it's the love that's curative I don't know but there was so much love and wisdom handed down my family line with regards to tea that I basically referenced to it as being a bit of a generational gift and when the pandemic hit us and we had the racial uprisings of 2020 and we were all feeling very tender my way to actually engage with the people that I had built community with on social media was to say, you know what, this world is feeling very traumatic. Why don't we have tea? And so I started sitting down, having tea, asking, and also referencing any kind of mental health tips that felt pertinent to the times that we were in. And it really just took off. You know, I wasn't expecting that, but it was something that people I think really needed. Oh, it's again, it's like we were talking before about the way in which in your family system, you would box up the items. And you'd said that oftentimes the items hold the pain in a family system. Well, this is another tangible tea is something also tangible and that holds the power and the healing. So it's like you really like for you, it's so seamless to move from the object to the energy and the emotion and the story and the legacy. It's really so, so beautiful and so natural for you to do that. Thank you. Thank you. It's grounding for sure. (laughs) What is a process for a listener to kind of begin a process of inquiry about what are the objects or the elements in their home and their family that hold both, you know, pain and possibility? How could somebody embark on that? journey of kind of like Mm. pairing up object and story in the way that you do? Wow, I love this question so much. (laughs) So, you know, when, when we can practice body attunement in reference to the world that we exist in at every point in time, I think it offers us a greater ability to have an understanding of how objects impact us and what kind of emotions they spur in us. So in part, the practice would be, apart from any objects themselves, really having a little bit more of the body attunement. Like, and what that means is just, you know, getting into a practice, even if it's a 60 second practice of body scanning, like just go through your body and just notice what's there non-judgmentally and just get a full scan of any sensations that maybe stand out, right? And that is an opportunity and invitation into having that body awareness. And then integrating the objects themselves, like looking at an object, touching the object, smelling the object, utilizing all of your senses to then engage the object and getting a sense of how am I feeling in this moment? Where do I feel what I feel? You know, and just really getting a sense of what is the energy that is being translated over by way of this item, this family heirloom, you know, this um, gift that 
was given to me, whatever it might be, it holds some element of energy and that energy gets translated into emotion. And so it's important to know, okay, well, what's the emotion? What is it? And how is it being held in my body? And I think that that in and of itself is already a practice that can help us feel more centered, more grounded, and more attuned to the very things that we probably pass by every single day in our home and don't really pay attention to the ways that they're impacting us. Oh, okay. That's a little call to action for reimagining love listeners. I love that. It's a really, I'm really curious then for the way that somebody who's listening to this conversation will sort of view the objects in their home differently or just have a deepened sense of why this object, this item means as much to a person as it does. That's not silly. It's not frivolous. It's actually that these objects hold energy and have the power to remind us of something really important and elemental about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. You integrate a range of healing modalities in your book, and you offer lots of resources for your reader around everything from sound bath meditations to cupping to aromatherapy to Tai Chi. So can you talk about both the synergy and maybe also the tension that exists between like mainstream mental health therapy and these more holistic practices? How do you see them going together? How do you see them at times perhaps clashing with each other? I'll go with the clashing first, because I think the clashing is a little bit what has been the case maybe for a longer period of time, even though I do feel like there is a shift that is kind of like becoming more generalized among us clinicians around holistic modalities. But even when I started, they they used to be called something different, like integrated mental health care or alternative therapies. And, you know, back then, we were, in essence, like seen as doing something that felt almost like experimental, or one might say, not effective. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The word alternative is is otherizing, right? It's like, there's there's the real thing, then there's the alternative thing. So that word is so loaded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it made it so that even when I was like in clinical spaces, when I would be in clinic team meetings, and I'm talking about like, I'm, I'm in a hospital setting, right? And so everyone is talking about their work from a very pure, pure dynamic lens. Some people were like pure unions, pure Freudians, you know, like very pure. And I'm sitting here, you know, talking about how we can integrate breath work and how we can integrate a meditative practice into the practice of therapy so that we can have a space that felt more contained, more settled, and more open to psychological safety for the people that we serve. And that was, it it felt so foreign to the people that were, you know, in my collegiate space that it almost kind of like wasn't really entertained, right? And and I don't blame them because we are indoctrinated into a system. A hundred percent. Yeah, there's a lot around evidence-based therapies or or even like, you know, what stood the test of time? <laughs> and, and the reality is that we are seeing a lot of this maybe from the perspective of what has worked for me as a clinician versus what are my clients telling me is working for them? Mm-hmm. And what my clients have told me works for them is when we start our sessions with sound bath meditations and we settle the nervous system and we segue into the harder parts of us needing to dig through the layers of their pain, but that we're not jumping right into it 30 seconds into session when they're still feeling pretty unraveled and they're just coming off the train and they're throwing their coat on, you know, the other side of the couch and then just like getting right to their story. Yeah. So that they can get it all out. It's a very different energy when you're integrating the practices that can settle the body and, and really help a person to feel more rooted and connected. And, you know, when it comes to actually, what does the evidence tell us about this? Well, you know, there's evidence that is manufactured in a lab and there's evidence that has stood the test of time for thousands of years because people have been using these very mechanisms as a way to heal within themselves and within their communities for as long as we've been alive. And we only... We only get answers to the questions that we ask. And so within mainstream medicine, within mainstream psychiatry and mental health, if these questions haven't been asked about holistic integrative practices, then they're not going to have evidence-based answers. And so I love that you're reminding us that there are lots of ways of knowing. There's multiple ways of knowing. And we have held up particular ways of knowing 
But another way of knowing, as you're saying, is the history, the many, many, many hundreds and thousands of years of these practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're in a global mental health crisis, probably for many reasons, but part of it is our older systems aren't working in the ways that they need to be working on a more global scale. So we, we need to revisit. Okay. Last question before we do our listener question. So one way that somebody may begin to learn about sound bath meditation or these, these practices is through a therapist in their life like you, who brings these practices in to help the nervous system settle before and as they're going to do work. What guidance do you have for somebody who just kind of wants to explore these practices on their own? Because there's a long list of different possibilities. Do you have guidance or suggestions for how somebody might pick up and try different healing modalities and how does one know if it's working for them, if it's landing for them, like somebody who's kind of trying to find their way on their own, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I find it that whenever we can at the very least connect to one person that has a holistic approach to their practice, that can be very helpful. For example, I have a natural path and I take like my sister and my mother, like everyone gets lymphatic drainage and we just like, I'm like this family is deeply, you know, inflamed and generations of inflammation. We need to de-stress and, and, and do that through the body. And I have the conversations with my naturopath that help inform what I need to know, not only about myself and my body, but even my own practice. And so wherever we may land, whether your first step is going to an acupuncturist because, you know, you want to be able to lean into like balancing your hormone levels because you you have a feeling that some of the mood symptoms may be correlated with that, then, you know, ask the questions to help you become fully informed as to what is happening. Don't just like go get the acupuncture session and then leave without the comprehensive examination of what's going on and what is this person doing to work with your body so that then you can bring that conversation to the other people that are also a part of your healing team. I, I put the onus, unfortunately, on the person that's doing the healing. One, because I think it's important for us to be informed consumers of healing, period, right? Like we need to know like what is happening here. And that's why in my own practice, I orient the client through and, and even the reader, you know, to what are we really doing here? And what are the roots of these practices? But also the model of care that I was operating under and that we tried to integrate into the Columbia medical system was one that was integrated and had every clinician and all the different types of specialists talking to one another about the same person so that we could treat the whole person. We could help them to elevate out of the level of illness that they may have been experiencing where there was you know a physical complication or a mental health complication but we are not there yet as far as society is you know just across the world we don't have integrated systems of care that are accessible and available to all and especially within hospital systems so for a person to just become well informed and to to ask the questions of their practitioners so that they can know you know what's going on thank you okay So let's talk to Kyle for just a little moment here as we wrap up. So we have a listener question from Kyle and he uses he, him pronouns and he's writing to us from Cape Town, South Africa. And Kyle writes, I've recently gotten into a new relationship. It has progressed quickly, but naturally. The only speed bump so far is that the playbook for how we handle or interact with our exes is different. I prefer to go no contact and leave the relationship in the past while my partner believes that you can be friends with your ex. My partner was recently out of her past relationship three months, while I have been single for longer, seven months. The challenge lies in that she constantly brings up her ex in casual conversation, such as Rob, fake name, used to live there, it's a good area, or we should do a half marathon, I did it with Rob. These types of constant reminders bring up feelings of pain, jealousy, anxiety, and not feeling good enough for her. I feel like I'm dating her ex as well. How do we reconcile our different playbooks about exes? So what stands out to you? Yeah, where do you want to start in our conversation about Kaya? Where my mind goes automatically is definitely to the fact that the name Rob, right, our pseudonym, is a point of trigger, right? Like the triggering of perceptions of worthiness or, you know, meeting the mark for this person that Kyle's with. And so it's 
an important conversation to have with our partners, especially when there's a relationship that is still in its infancy, to have conversations that really set the boundary around what is it that we discuss based on our previous relationships and what is it that we're going to, you know, kind of keep out for the sake of protecting what we're building. And if the conversation can be had from that perspective of, I want to preserve this, I want to build it, and I want this to be something that you and I can focus on together, then it allows, you know, Kyle's partner to really see Kyle's investment and perhaps not feel like Kyle is, you know, just trying to shift blame in their direction. The health of the relationship might be in part contingent upon how much they can focus on each other versus previous people that they've been involved with. Mm-hmm. I really like that idea of putting, it's like aligning Kyle and his partner to look at the playbook, right? That's what he's wanting too. He's wanting a playbook. And that's not, it's not like it's Kyle's way or his partner's way, but it really is where Kyle wants to be coming from. His intent is one around preservation and protection of this relationship. And so from his perspective, right, her talking about the acts frequently and in kind of casual ways isn't protecting it. And that might not be, I think I would be, to the degree that Kyle can, I would want him to be really curious about why, like what is it about his partner where she does bring up her ex in these casual ways? I don't know, I don't know what her tender spot, we, we don't know what her tender spot is, but it may be that when Kyle is triggered, he can't even see what her tender spot is. And it may be that there's a part of her that feels like she has to prove something to Kyle, that she has to prove something about her history and her past and her own perhaps questions around worthiness of Kyle, you know? And so it may be that there's something tender in her that Kyle's own trigger is keeping him from being able to inquire about, be curious about, They may still end up making a collective decision about when and how they talk about access, but at least Kyle would have some insight then that she's not bringing this up to hurt him, to make him feel jealous, to make him feel worthless. She's actually bringing it up because she's got some insecurity or something that she's trying to kind of stabilize inside of herself. Mm-hmm. And the how and when is is a really critical point because very often when we want to have the conversations is typically when we're feeling the most heated about the fact that, that that something's happened. So usually right after the trigger point, but it can be a healthier and perhaps more settled and, and maybe even more open dialogue whenever we're feeling like we have already like done a little bit of the settling work for ourselves so that we can enter the conversation with a steady head. Right. Because part of the nature of feeling, I mean, you know, I think it's really one really good takeaway for Kyle is what you said right at the top, which is that the ex's name is a trigger. So at this point, Kyle's nervous system has a particular kind of shift that it makes when he hears that name. Mm -hmm. And so I agree that a conversation ought not happen in that moment. It ought to happen when Kyle can really bring in like this open, I'm like expanding my chest, you know, like when he feels a kind of spaciousness inside of himself to be really aligned with this partner that he's so excited about. And so the, and so the conversation really is founded in like, we're building an us here and let's figure out what are our best practices. Yeah. It's a hard one because Part of an early relationship is that kind of back and forth of sharing chapters, you know, sharing history and sharing the journey that got the two of you till now. And that history includes prior relationships. So it is this like kind of delicate dance of, I want you to know me. And in knowing me, part of me is the relationships that I have been in before you. And I think that's not, that's, that's difficult to figure out. How do you invite someone to know your story? even when that story involves prior loves. Yeah, and there's ways. I mean, if the trigger point is the name, there's ways to bring in the perspectives shared or the ideas shared or the events shared in previous relationships and really kind of leave some sort of an ambiguous understanding of in what relationship. Something that has worked for me in the past that I've really loved is going rock climbing. And I'd love to actually have that experience with you. Right. But 
I didn't say Rob at any point in time, right? You know? No, no it's about her experience. And the, yeah, yes. that's great. I'd love to continue that. It's something I enjoy. Or are you willing? Let's do it together, right? Like it's, there's so much more that can be said that perhaps isn't even being said because when, when that name enters the picture, you know, it already kind of like creates attention. That's great. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Okay. This time has flown by with you. Oh, Kyle, I hope that you, I know that you've gotten something that you can take away from this conversation. I'm, I'm cheering for you because it sounds like, I mean, I think the, the last thing I would want to Kyle to remember is it sounds like there's so much goodness here. It sounds like there's, yeah. you know, part of the jealousy, jealousy is such a tricky thing because part of the jealousy is excitement and enthusiasm. And that, that comes through really clearly in Kyle's question. Like he wants to be able to build something solid with this partner that he's so excited about. So the jealousy is this, it's really tricky. It's his to manage. It's his to talk about in ways that really invite collaboration. And I want him to remember that it's a reflection of just how much excitement he has about what's possible here. Oh, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Tell us about how listeners can get to know you more deeply and um, know your work more deeply. Yes. So people can look me up at drmarielbouquet.com and you can find my book, Break the Cycle, there. And, you know, if you're hoping to dive more into generational healing, that's a resource that's there for you. But I also have a podcast and uh, an intergenerational trauma healing assessment that's there as well. And in addition to that, sound bath. So there, there's a lot of goodies uh, on the website if people are wanting to continue to do the work. Wonderful. We will put links in the show notes to your book, which is available wherever books are sold. We, of course, want people in the U.S. to go to bookshop.org and support the independent booksellers and your website. We'll put all those links there so that people can really take part in all the nourishing, generous offerings that you have created. So thank you so much, Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dr. Bouquet, for joining me here on Reimagining Love. To learn more about Break the Cycle, a guide to healing intergenerational trauma, check out the show notes of this episode. And thank you again to Kyle for submitting this vulnerable and I'm sure very relatable question. I hope that our answers gave you some valuable guidance. Until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.